The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Angels, we all have them. They're our unseen guides, our companions, our teachers, and they're all around us. Sometimes, they make themselves known in the most miraculous ways. Join Angel Communicator, Reiki Master, and QHHT hypnotherapist Christy Clemens Hoffman for stories from real people who have experienced real life angel encounters. Welcome back to Real Life Angel Encounters. Today I want to talk to you about the Cokeville Miracle which happened on a Friday afternoon in 1986 when something unspeakable happened in the elementary school in Cokeville, Wyoming. Now, I first heard of this story on the podcast, and that's why we drink with Christine and M. It's a true life and paranormal podcast, and you'll see this story combines both of those genres. Now, the town of Cokeville, Wyoming, as you can imagine, was pretty small, and it was also pretty heavily Mormon, or LDS. And the story begins with David Young, who was, um, I would say, mentally ill. He had some mental troubles, but for a while he was able to focus and get his life together, and he graduated with a degree in criminal justice from a small college. And then he became the marshal, for Cokesville, Wyoming, and he was the sole town marshal in the 1970s. But after six months in that position, which was the probationary period, he was let go for misconduct. During that time, he met and married a woman named Doris, and they had both been married before, and they each had children. Doris had one daughter, David had two, David's youngest daughter, Penny, still lived with them, and when they moved to Tucson, they got a home in a trailer park, and David became increasingly isolated and troubled. He composed his philosophical manifesto, Zero Equals Infinity, in which he argued for a new world order, or as he called it, a brave new world. Now, David had some longtime friends, Gerald Deppie and Doyle Menenhall. And for them, his treatise manifested as a get-rich-quick scheme that he called the biggie. But what they didn't know 
is that he was planning to take over Cokeville Elementary School and hold the children hostage for $2 million each. He planned to speak with and hopefully meet with the president then, who was Ronald Reagan, before setting off a bomb that would take them all to the new world where he would reign supreme. Now, I don't know how all of this money would serve them once they moved to the new world, but that's uh, perhaps a detail for another time. He targeted the tight-knit community that um, he saw as something standing in his way and something that he could easily manipulate to get to his goals, saying that you threaten one and all are at your mercy, thinking that this tight-knit community would quickly buckle under his demands. However, he saw that weakness, but it turned out to be Cokesville's greatest strength. So in his writings, he explained that the imaginary world of zero equals infinity felt like his and the Cokeville children's last resort. And he revealed the plan only to Deppie and Mendenhall on the way to the elementary school. The two friends decided they were not going to participate in this scheme, and David held them at gunpoint while they were handcuffed inside their van. Then shortly after 1 p.m., mother, father, and daughter left the van and walked through the school's front doors. Of course, this was in a time when you could walk through a school's front doors. Anybody could. That has changed a lot, and I'm glad about that. They brought with them, when they went into the school, hundreds of copies of David's manifesto, nine handguns, four rifles, and a gasoline bomb in a grocery cart with a shoelace trigger attached to David's wrist. So you yank the shoelace, and it detonates the bomb. Upon entering, the daughter hesitated and went back to the van with the plan of reporting her father's plans at Cokeville Town Hall, which she did. But meanwhile, at the school, David set up the bomb in classroom number four. His wife, Doris, went room to room and gathered the students and faculty, claiming that there was a surprise in another room, maybe an assembly or an announcement. And reading some of the accounts with eyewitnesses, they later said that there was something suspicious about her. They didn't quite believe her, but it was so unusual and so unprecedented that they all followed her anyway. But when they get there, they realize that something was going on, especially since David started distributing and reading from this manifesto that he brought. And when authorities arrived, he demanded to speak to the president, President Reagan, whom he'd sent a copy of his manifesto to as well. And then he asked for the ransom. This, uh, I think this turned out to be something like $20 million all told. So $2 million per student, I don't know, it's quite a lot of money. Altogether, there were 154 people gathered into one classroom. It was a 30 by 32 foot room, and there were 136 children, nine teachers, six staff, a job applicant, and a UPS driver, in addition to David and Doris. Now, it was a hot day, and it made the crowded room feel even smaller, and gasoline was leaking from this bomb that David had made. and It was starting to make people sick. And as things started to become clearer and clearer, children started sobbing and complaining of headaches and wanting to go home. One teacher said that a child was throwing up because she was so afraid and other children were really starting to get 
headaches and nausea because of the gas fumes. So the teachers did ask if they could open some windows, which David did grant, and they, thank goodness, had the foresight to tape off an eight by eight foot square around David and the bomb. And you'll see later why this was very helpful. Now they called, the teachers called this a magic square and the children were not allowed inside of it because it seemed that the children were starting to make David even more nervous, even more agitated. So they wanted to keep the kids away from him and, and mostly away from the bomb. So then the teachers asked for and got permission to bring in books, art supplies, games, and a TV to help keep the children calm. One of the kids had a birthday, so everybody sang happy birthday, but <laughs> the kids were understandably still freaked out. Doris tried to calm everybody's nerves by telling them to think of the day as a story or adventure movie, telling them they'd have something to write about in their journals and tell their grandchildren about, which actually came to be true. But at the same time, everybody started to gather outside of the school, parents, authorities, and you know, town officials. Everyone was getting very nervous, and the students and teachers in the classroom decided to pray. And at that point, when they started to pray, David got even more agitated, and he decided to go to the bathroom. He took the, the detonating string off of his wrist, put it on Doris's, and reminded her that any sudden movement, any jerk, would detonate the bomb. And then he went to the bathroom. Shortly after four o'clock and two and a half hours into the standoff, Doris did forget that she had this shoelace on her wrist and pointed to something setting the bomb off. Now, understand about this bomb. It was designed to have loads of shrapnel in it, first of all. It was also designed to send a flammable powder into the air so that when the bomb detonated, the air would be on fire. The air would be in flames. This was no ordinary bomb. It was very cleverly built and designed to cause the maximum amount of damage. So shortly after David went to the adjoining bathroom, Doris, of course, attempted to do something. She detonated the bomb. Teachers shouted for everybody to get down and black smoke immediately started filling the room as chaos ensued. There were flames everywhere. Doris herself was on fire and greatly damaged by the bomb, and several children were, bombed, were burnt as well by the bomb and the flames. But most had been sitting near the windows and doors hoping to get some fresh air, and this was actually part of the miracle is that they were able to get out so quickly because the doors and windows were already open and they could start just filing out, and teachers started moving the students and shoving them out the windows and out the door. When David heard the bomb go off, he came in and uh, saw his wife in flames and badly damaged, and so he shot her. I, we don't know if it was to put her out of her suffering or out of his anger that she ruined their plan, and then he started shooting wildly into the surrounding smoke. He only hit one person, though. This was a music teacher. The music teacher, John Miller, who had been helping everybody escape. Now he was shot through the back, which the bullet came out of his shoulder. 
And he was injured, but he recovered. He made a full recovery. However, Young, David Young, that is, went back to the bathroom and shot himself. Outside of the building, as you can imagine, parents, police, authority, authority figures were scrambling and shouting and panicked, trying to see if any children were left in the building, any adults were left in the building, seeing to everybody's injuries, trying to find their children and put them with their parents. Just a mass chaos scene. People said that they couldn't recognize anybody as everyone was covered in black soot from this black cloud of, of smoke that just filled the room. The people closest to the bomb emerged with severe burns and a total of 79 people were taken to area hospitals. All in all, there were only two casualties in this whole thing and that was David and Doris Young. So of course, that was part of the miracle that in such a deadly bomb blast, there really were no casualties. The two casualties were by gunshot, and they were the two perpetrators. Everyone else survived. So as reporters started converging in Cokeville, another story emerged. So the people investigating the bomb blast found that the bomb had been, perhaps as part of the miracle, it was broken. It was altered. If it had been intact, it would have leveled the entire wing of the school. But as it was, some of the blasting cap wires had been cut before detonation. A gasoline leak prevented the explosive powder from setting the air on fire. And despite there being a great deal of shrapnel in the bomb, no one had been hit. And so this bomb, which should have blown out an entire wing of the building, had gone straight up into the air and minimized human harm. Again, this miracle just keeps on going. At the same time, adults and children reported feeling embraced by a warm blanket while waiting in the classroom. The experience was very intense for those who had been praying. Stories started emerging of a beautiful woman in white who told children to sit by the windows, and several children saw angels with faces of loved ones over each person just prior to the blast. There were stories of more um, direct divine intervention. There was one child reported a teacher helping her flee the burning classroom, only to recognize later that that teacher was really her great aunt who had died many years before. Another student recalled that her dead grandmother had told her to listen to her brother who was sitting by the window, only to find out later that this grandmother had been long deceased. And then even the lead investigator's son pointed to an image of his grandmother as the angel who'd protected him by the fire. Some even reported that angels came and joined hands and forced the explosion upwards. In short, what could have been a tragedy with hundreds in lost lives had become a miracle. So young 
was thinking originally that this act would drive this the town of Cokeville apart, but it only served to bring them closer and trust in the power of prayer. So the bombing did shake Cokeville, which was a small community, shook it to the core, um, but it also strengthened their faith, their Mormon faith. So since then, this story has become a legend, and some even reported that the outline of an angel was seen later amongst the ruins in the shrapnel. Now, there was a movie that was made afterward, and that is the Cokeville Miracle. And you can see this on Amazon. After seeing the film and reading the accounts, the, the film really does a very good job of depicting what happened that day in May 1986. Now, I was alive in 1986, but I don't remember hearing about this in the news at all. It truly um, was a story that I think may have been buried. Um, maybe in the media, maybe there were other things going on at the time. Um, but then when you look at all of the different stories of the children talking about the people who showed up, you see that they were going to be protected. Maybe it was the power of prayer. Maybe it's because they were innocents, but they were going to be protected. In fact, in the movie, one of the children had said that there were angels that looked like lit up light bulbs who came down from the ceiling and carried the bomb blast up through the ceiling. I don't know if that was an embellishment. I didn't see that anywhere yet in the private accounts and the personal accounts, but you know, that story, why, why wouldn't it be part of the events of that day? One of the children said that there were angels for everyone in that room. And um, yeah, they all joined hands around the bomb and went up through the ceiling with the explosion. Now, these children, of course, they're, they wouldn't be prone to make up stories. They wouldn't be prone to invent details that they did not witness. I mean, what would be the point of that? Each one of them who described the events that day, they described all angels. And for most of them, they came to find out that these were family members who had departed. So in many cases, the children would talk about, for example, a, a woman in a white dress who had short brown hair and looked so much like their mom. And she said, that's not possible. Um, but then when she got the family photo album out and they were looking through the pages, the child was able to identify their grandmother. And other children were able to identify other family members who appeared to them during this time. I mean, the whole thing is really a miracle if you look at it. This could have gone the other way. The bomb could have killed every person in that room the hundreds of kids, the teachers, the, the staff, it could have resulted in great loss of life. But then with the wires being cut, who would have done that? Certainly not David or Doris. And the gas bottle, the bottle filled with gas leaking, 
and causing them to open the windows, but also to make the bomb blast less effective. That's another miracle. And with all of the shrapnel going off in the bomb and no one getting hit from it, even the teacher, the music teacher who'd been shot in the back made a full recovery. (laughs) I remember reading one of the accounts of one of the children who suffered extensive burns on her face. She was in the hospital and the staff were crying just looking at her face and how badly it was damaged and how badly it was burned. The doctors were starting to talk to the parents about skin grafts. But this kid just knew that she would be fully healed. I I think she even um, heard from one of her angels saying that you will make a full recovery and no scars. And she did, she healed. Her skin completely healed, no trace of any of the burns, no scars whatsoever. Miracles just abound in this story. And I think it's truly evidence that our loved ones are with us, that if we pray and we believe, there can be miracles. And even if we don't pray, and if we don't believe necessarily, there can still be miracles. I think it shows us to that not all may be what it seems, that if it's in our divine path, if it's our divine purpose to be spared these things, that we can be spared these things. I don't know. I just, I was amazed by this story. If you get a chance to see the movie, The Cokeville Miracle, I think you'll really enjoy it. Also in the movie, there is the story of, you know, the town's, Marshall at the time, in 1986, who was having a crisis of faith. He had seen some things that were in his line of duty that made him question the presence of God. How would God allow these things to happen? Therefore, what are we doing um, expressing our faith in the family and in the community when I'm just not feeling it? But after this, after his son and his other children, his daughter, were spared during this tragic event and that they even had stories of angels and loved ones around them that he realized that there was really something to faith and expressing faith so in the story there's that subplot as well I think it's, it's just a nice story it's a nice it's a movie that um, is true and it shows us, I think, in a very real way how frightening that moment must have been for the children and the, the teachers and the adults in the room. And it also shows us just the power and the strength of angels and how they are here to protect us and serve us. So I hope you do go see that movie. It's wonderful. It's free on Amazon Prime, and I can highly recommend it. And that is the story of the real-life angel encounter of the Cokeville Miracle of 1986. If you enjoyed this story, please share it with your contacts, your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors. Please tell everyone you know about real-life angel encounters and share all these episodes. 
And if you know anybody who's got their own real-life angel encounter, or if you do, I would love to hear from you. Please email your story to angelencounterspodcast at gmail.com. That is angelencounterspodcast at gmail.com. And you could be part of this podcast. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. special thank you to James Wheeler for the original music and Cassandra Harold for the voiceovers. Please subscribe and follow wherever you're listening now. And be sure to tell your friends. The more people know about this podcast, the more great story submissions we get. Submit your own real-life angel encounters to angelencounterspodcast at gmail.com. Want to know what your angels and loved ones have to tell you? Schedule an appointment with Christy at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.